Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. You'll excuse the fact that I'm out of breath, but about 10 or 15 minutes ago, a tragic thing from all indications at this point has happened in the city of Dallas. Let me quote to you this. And I'll, you'll excuse me if I am out of breath. A bulletin, this is from the United Press from Dallas. President Kennedy and Governor John Colony have been cut down by assassin's bullets in downtown Dallas. They were riding in an open automobile when the shots were fired. The president, his limp body carried in the arms of his wife, Jacqueline, has rushed to Parkland Hospital. From Dallas, Texas, the flash, apparently official, President Kennedy died at 1 p.m. Central Standard Time, 2 o'clock Eastern Standard Time, some 38 minutes ago. Welcome to the Kennedy Beacon Podcast. Today is November 22nd, 2023, and it is the 60th anniversary of John F. Kennedy's assassination. In commemoration of this unsolved, history-altering crime, we are recording a special one-hour roundtable discussion about that day and its impact on our nation's history since then. My name is Aaron Good, your host for this episode. I would like to introduce our remarkable and esteemed panel. Today, we have with us legendary author Dick Russell. Hello, Dick Russell. How are you? I'm good. Thanks so much. Good to be with you. We also have journalist and historian David Talbot. David, how are you doing? I'm great. Thank you. We have Governor Jesse Ventura joining us today. Uh, Governor, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Pleasure to be here. And we also have John Kirby and Libby Handros, two filmmakers. Thank you both for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Now, since Libby has to leave for an event near her, uh, we are going to uh, start with John Kirby and Libby Handros. Director John Kirby and producer Libby Handros are an experienced filmmaking team. After each working on several major broadcast productions, they teamed up 20 years ago to make the festival darling BBC classic The American Ruling Class, starring Harper's Magazine editor Louis Latham. More recently, they defied the censors to produce Perspectives on the Pandemic, a series of interviews with epidemiologists and physicians who had questions about the science behind the COVID response. Today, their epic film series, Four Died Trying, has premiered on Apple TV at the number one spot for documentaries, which is good news. John and Libby, this is not just the assassination anniversary for you, the assassination of JFK, obviously, but it is the premiere of your film series, which you've put the better part of a decade into. Uh, what would you like to tell everyone about the importance of this anniversary and the JFK assassination in general? Well, I think the assassination of JFK actually begins what some people call the assassination decade. And so you get the assassination assassination of JFK. You then get the assassination of Malcolm X. You get the assassin, assassination of Medgar Evers. You get a bunch of other people. And then you get Martin Luther King. And then you get Bobby. And eventually, as you go down the road, you get Allard Lowenstein. And you get John Lennon, even. So, you know, there's a whole period of time when people are being assassinated. And it starts with JFK. And what we've learned is it is not good for one's health to go against the military-industrial complex. Because what did all four men who we are studying have in common? They had many things in common, but one of the big things they had in common was they all came out against the war in Vietnam. And that's something that definitely binds them together, and it binds together the hate that the military-industrial complex, and when I say the military-industrial complex, I mean the political side of it, I mean the 
private sector side of it. I mean, the whole nine yards that comes together and would like to see all these men dead, sadly dead. And I think also um, the assassination of John F. Kennedy begins the kind of, in a way, the death of American democracy and, and brings us to where we are today. You know, one of our taglines is to understand where we are today. You have to understand where we come from. And it's very important to look back and see what happened in 1963, see what um, President Kennedy was trying to achieve and wonder if he had stayed in office for a second term, what we would look like today. What would the country look like today? There wouldn't have been a war in Vietnam, which changes this country very drastically. For instance. Yeah. I think you could add to that, not even what the country would be today, what the world would be today. Absolutely. And I'll chime in with what Libby's saying. I mean, we're learning about Kennedy's anti-colonial policy in Africa, for instance, or the way, and this is something that, that David Talbot, who's with us, chronicles in his book. I mean, the Alliance for Progress, what a remarkable program to elevate Central and South America from its status as a, a repository for migrant and you know near slave labor and the you know extraction of resources to a place with a middle class and a developed economy what a, what an amazing idea that is what an amazing where what would our southern border look like today if that had been successful what would the world look like as governor ventura says if the peace corps which started out as such a beautiful idea and you know would we have needed bill gates's you know, toilets that turned poop into water if the Peace Corps had been able to dig the ditches and put the irrigation systems in and, you know, complete the task that they were originally designed for instead of becoming what many say was a CIA front. You know, I mean, this is the kind of thing, all of these programs that Kennedy was doing, he was simultaneously raising the minimum wage in this country while keeping inflation down. He was doing incredible things on all fronts. He was ending the Cold War, his, probably his principal sin. You know, in addition to having refused to go into Laos, refused to invade Cuba twice, all the things that we know, gone up against the steel companies, the steel industry, gone up against the oil depletion allowance. He was offending every major power sector. And it's in, you know, our film focuses on all the series, which is going to be going on for years to come and inaugurates today with the prologue, which is an encapsulation of all four men's stories, a kind of overview of what each of them were doing. You see that, you know, when you see them together and you realize that they were each going, uh, they were each, as Libby says, uh, fighting uh, different sectors or the same aspects of the, of the same power structure. And if, so when you see, look at them together, you're like, well, of course they were all killed. My father, who was in the Kennedy Civil Rights Justice Department, who would never give me the time of the day on the Kennedy assassination, would say, I'd say, who killed Kennedy, Dad? He'd say three words, Lee Harvey Oswald. Well, before he died, he did. He saw a version of what we're putting out today, and he had to admit they gained strength from each other. When you see John Kennedy doing the things I just outlined, when you see Malcolm X coming out to bring charges in the world court against the United States for its treatment of black Americans and to call out the, the colonialist policies of America. When you see Martin Luther King come out against the Vietnam War, April 4th, 1967, to be killed exactly a year to the day later, when you see him planning an occupation which the authorities feared would turn into an insurrection in Washington, D.C., to end poverty in the United States. And when you see Bobby Kennedy running for president, you know, privately, as David Talbot has so brilliantly brought out, 
privately talking about how he was going to reinvestigate his brother's death and publicly becoming the the friend of the poor and the dispossessed and the beloved of the country. And, and, and again, as 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 David Talbot writes so beautifully, and he's one of our principal interviews um, and and uh, you know our principal sources. You know, he he was what the country needed. The, you know, the country, as he says in our prologue, was a bleeding wound, and they needed Kennedy. And you know, it was very clear that he was going to sweep his way to the presidency. And that's the last thing, as Bobby Kennedy Jr. says in our prologue, that the uh, that the killers, if they were in the agencies, would have wanted to see happen to see a Bobby Kennedy presidency. So all four of these guys. Where you see what they were doing, and that's the most radical thing you can say. It's not like what angle or trajectory from the grassy knoll. It's that they were all for doing these incredible things, and those are the things that we need to emulate and uh, move forward with today. That's that's the kind of the, those are the pro- programs we need to reinstitute. We need to pick up where they left off, and I hope that our film series will bring that out for everyone. I think Ford died trying. Really, uh, what I have seen of it, and full disclosure, I'm in. I, I work for. Uh, I, I write for the website, the Ford died trying website. So, I could be not unbiased, but uh, it's it's a it's a wonderful production, and it tells a, a story that is only grows in importance as we see where this country is headed. Um, I want to move on to Dick Russell now. Dick Russell is the author of two groundbreaking books on the JFK assassination. These include The Man Who Knew Too Much about JFK assassination figure Richard Case Nagel and the 2005 book On the Trail of the JFK Assassins, which is being updated with a new edition to be released uh, right about now. He is the author of the new biography, The Real RFK Jr., Trials of a Truth Warrior. Additionally, Dick Russell is the co-author of five books with another one of today's guests, former Minnesota Governor Jesse Ventura. Uh, Three of those Ventura Russell books were New York Times bestsellers. Dick Russell is currently serving as a researcher and commentator for a 10-part podcast series about the assassination of President John F. Kennedy, hosted by Rob Reiner and Soledad O'Brien. Dick Russell, can you share your thoughts on this important anniversary and tell us about your recent work on the case? Yeah, thanks so much, Aaron. Good to be with you and, and to talk to all those folks who are listening out there today. I, you know, I, I was the first investigative journalist, I think, on the trail back in the, in the mid-1970s, who really spent, I spent like two and a half years <clears throat> first writing for the Village Voice and New Times Magazine and different publications when the House Assassinations Committee was gearing up. And um, in the course of that, I, I interviewed uh, dozens of people, uh, most of whom are no longer alive, but um, I taped a lot of them. And, and those tapes are going to be heard, some of them on the podcast series that I'm doing with with Rob Reiner uh, and Soledad O'Brien. And um I mean, you know, it's been 60 years, and yet still, to this day, a lot of the files on, that the government had, the, the ones that haven't been destroyed, and I'm afraid there were many of those, um, are, have still not been released. And I don't think there's any excuse for that. And uh, uh, a journalist colleague, Jeff Morley, has uh, he's filed lawsuits uh, that are trying to pry those documents out of the government. Uh, unfortunately, President Biden has decided not to allow that to, to happen. Uh, anymore. And um, so, you know, we still, we're, we're little by little, we're, we're learning more to the point where more than 60% of the American people now, uh, I think close to 70%, are convinced that it was certainly not the work of uh, one lone gunman, Lee Harvey Oswald, which 
is exactly what the House Assassinations Committee concluded in 1979, although they didn't know who who at that time to point the finger to. And and uh, in the, in the podcast series, uh, we interview uh, Robert Blakey, who was the head of the committee after the first fellow Richard Sprague was was fired. Um, and and Blakey um, uh, now believes that he was deceived that uh, the the same CIA guy that, that that Jeff Morley has been trying to get the documents about George Joannidis was appointed the liaison to the House Committee back in 1979 or 78, and never was revealed that he was also during 1963 the guy at the CIA in, in Miami that was in charge of this group of Cuban exiles that were connected directly to Lee Harvey Oswald. So now I think the listeners will find it interesting how, how Mr. Blakey has, has um, shifted his, his thoughts to the possibility that, uh, the probability really, that the CIA was equally as involved, if not more so, uh, than, than the mob, which originally um, Blakey thought was, was the main perpetrator. So, you know, we got a combination of forces here um, that, that we're, we're going to try to reveal in, in the podcast series and, and that I'm trying to do in the revised edition of, of my book on the trail of JFK assassins. And, uh, you know, I think we're finally narrowing it down um, that what we had on November 22nd, 1963 uh, was a coup d'etat. Uh, it was not as it was supposed to be uh, framed. If it, if it wasn't a lone gunman, the attempt was to make it look like the Russians and the Cubans were behind this because Oswald had connections to those. But uh, in fact, uh, there was a far right, I guess you'd say, fascistic arm of the military, uh, military industrial complex that included oil man H.L. Hunt and, and rogue elements of the CIA. And I think a general named Charles Willoughby, um, who had been General MacArthur's chief of staff back during uh, the Korean War and World War II. And a group of Cuban exiles um, that were in Dallas that day, and you know we've never been told the truth, and the country has has never recovered from that. Rob Reiner says in the first episode of the podcast, and it made me really think about this: that what we lived through then, because we didn't have social media, uh, and we were all watched television, and we saw uh, Lee Harvey Oswald being gunned down by Jack Ruby right in front of our eyes, and it was a collective trauma that went through the country. And we've never recovered from it, really. We've never recovered from it because the truth has been denied us. And there's been a cover-up by the big media and, and by the, for starting with the Warren Commission for all these years. And I really hope that even though, you know, most of the uh, so-called perpetrators or uh, living witnesses are no longer living, that we can still do something to resolve this terrible moment in our history so that we can move forward from here and uh, and, and, and create a country that uh, or recreate a country that, that truly uh, has a democratic values rather than the, uh, the corruption that we're seeing in, in both parties today. And I think Robert Kennedy Jr. Uh, exemplifies that. And that's why he's becoming so popular. I guess I'd leave it at that. Thank you very much. Now, I want to talk to David Talbot, my uh, collaborator on Devil's Chess Club and a good friend now. David Talbot is a veteran journalist, the founding CEO of Salon.com. He is a Kennedy Beacon columnist. He also hosts, as I say, Devil's Chess Club with Bryce Green and me. He is the author of several books uh, and two that are very relevant to today's discussion, Brothers, the, Hin the Hidden History of the Kennedy Years, and The Devil's Chessboard, Alan Dulles, the CIA, and the Rise of America's Secret Government. 
Okay, both of these are essential reading. Brothers was, among other things, the first book to establish 40 years later what Senator Robert F. Kennedy really thought about the assassination of his brother, President Kennedy. David, you have not only been a journalist and historian uh, when it comes to the JFK assassination, you've played what I would say is a historical role in this American drama by writing Brothers, as I said, and you were the one who informed RFK Jr. about his father's thoughts on the assassination of President Kennedy, something that he wasn't ready to accept at that point. What can you share with us about it all now, 60 years after that horrific murder in Dallas? Yeah, thank you, Aaron, for having me. I did uh, encourage, as Dick Russell did, who's known Bobby Jr. for some time, uh, I encouraged him to look into this over 20 years ago, look into the JFK assassination as well as the murder of his own father, Robert Kennedy. Um, he resisted at the time. He said that his generation of Kennedys were taught to look forward, not back, and he wouldn't go to the dark side uh, as I encouraged him. I was, uh, at that point, beginning to research brothers, and I talked to him uh, quite honestly. And I said over breakfast that, it, with all due respect, Nancy Sheridan, who is Walter Sheridan's widow, told me that uh, Sheridan, who was Bobby Kennedy's top investigator, and Senator Kennedy both looked privately into the assassination in Dallas. They were both convinced that the Warren report was a whitewash, which it is. And they were determined to find the truth. As Jack Newfield, the journalist who is a friend of Bobby Kennedy's, uh, told me, with a computer brain of RFK, he put together the plot the first day of the assassination. So he knew right away, he suspected he knew, where the plot had originated. And he and his investigator and other people looked into this crime, and he was determined, RFK, to reopen uh, the investigation if he had been elected president in 68. Now, I think Bobby, to his credit, Bobby Jr. has obviously gone to the dark side. He understands the powers behind uh, the killing of his father and his uncle, as he himself takes great courage to run for president right now without the protection of the Secret Service, which President Biden perversely is denying him. I will take one exception with my good friend Dick Russell. I don't think it was a rogue operation uh, against President Kennedy in Dallas. It was the top of the CIA. Alan Dulles, Richard Helms, James Angleton represented the top command of the CIA, even though President Kennedy had fired Dulles two years before. His deputies at the CIA continued to treat him as if he were the head of the CIA. Uh, when people like Curtis LeMay, the head of the Air Force at the time, were factored into that, he took a big role in the cover-up in the autopsy of Bethesda. These were the top uh, military intelligence officials of the country. And of course, Helen Dulles always acted uh, in concert and consensus with his powerful and wealthy clients. So we're talking about uh, people on Wall Street, the Rockefellers, uh, his good friend, Dylan, uh, the bankers. Dylan ran the secretary, was secretary of treasury uh, at the time. He was in charge of the Secret Service conveniently. Uh, Dulles gave him kid glove treatment uh, when he should have grilled him at the Warren uh, inquest. Um, they were all thick as thieves. 
the people at the top. They decided, yes, the GFK, as John Kirby pointed out, was trying to end the Cold War, which is a huge racket for them. The military-industrial complex was a racket. They were making billions of dollars, they still are, from the, uh, the so-called forever wars. Uh, we've been at war in some part of the world ever since GFK was killed in Dallas. That's what it allowed them to do. Once they got rid of Kennedy, all was possible. They could have their wars, and they had it in Vietnam, and now they're having it in Ukraine and Gaza as well. So look, um, Kennedy was a man of peace. Uh, his peace speech should be read by every American that he delivered in June 1963 at American University. He told us we should empathize with our enemies. We all breathe the same air. We all cherish our children's future. He was talking about the Russians at the height of the Cold War. No president has ever done this since. So I think there was a reason to remove him from power. They thought they had to get rid of him, and they did. They did. Now, I'm going to turn next to Governor Jesse Ventura, who I have saved um, for last year because I didn't want anybody to have to follow the governor. Governor <laughs> Jesse Ventura was, of course, the governor of Minnesota. Before that, he was a professional wrestler. I grew up watching him as a pro wrestling commentator uh, before he went on to Hollywood, where he appeared in films like the Schwarzenegger classics, The Running Man and Predator. My 12-year-old self considered Predator to be the greatest work in the history of American cinema. I'm only slightly exaggerating. I really thought it was like genius somehow. Today he runs Jesse Ventura's Die First and Quit over at Substack. More relevant to today are the books that Jesse has written with Dick Russell, who's also on here, of course, uh, on the JFK assassination, including... They Killed Our President, 63 Reasons to Believe There Was a Conspiracy to Assassinate JFK, as well as 63 Documents the Government Doesn't Want You to Read. Governor Ventura, as a former high office holder and someone with a famous independent streak, what can you say about the importance of the JFK assassination on the 60th anniversary of the crime? Well, uh, for me, I guess I have a more personal insight into the president's death than any of the other panelists over the simple fact that uh, I like to refer today that on, on, on uh, November the 22nd, 1963, uh, not only Jack Kennedy died that day, but 58,000 of my generation died that day with him. And I'm fortunate today that I'm not one of them, but I am the result having served in the Vietnam War. So I am a casualty of the death of President Kennedy in the fact that had he lived, I am completely convinced today that there would never have been a Vietnam War. 58,000 of my generation would not have died then and I take it even beyond that. I don't believe there would have been a Cold War. Imagine what the world would be like today with no Vietnam and no Cold War that followed it for, what, decades and decades? So uh, that's why the death of John Kennedy I hold personally, because uh, I wouldn't have gone, had to go to Vietnam. And I wasn't drafted. I volunteered. I was United States Navy. And uh, the Navy's never had to draft. 
But, uh, uh, you know, so that part of it gets me. And then I'll tell you another quick story, Uh, you know, working with Dick Russell. And I wrote the book, 63 Reasons Why They Killed Our President for a Selfish Reason. I didn't write it because I was going to unveil some new thing and, and, you know, end the Kennedy killing and the truth would be known. I knew we, Dick and I would certainly help that, and there's things in that book that many people probably didn't know. But I wrote that book for this reason, personal. I wanted it on the record so that decades from now or even a century from now, they will know that the 38th governor of the state of Minnesota did not buy the Warren Commission and did not believe that John F. Kennedy was killed by Lee Harvey Oswald. And that was the major reason I wanted to write that book. I wanted it on the record. I wanted a a, a record out there that Governor Jesse Ventura did not buy the Warren Commission or the answer we got on the murder of John Kennedy. Now, fun story, interesting one. As Dick and all of Mr. Talbot and all of us know, you got to do book tours, right? (laughs) When you write books, you got to do book tours. Well, I had written one along in there. And during the course of that, they asked me, they offered me Houston or Dallas. And I had never been, I was governor at the time, and I had never been to Dallas. So I chose Dallas for the explicit purpose. I knew I could go see Dealey Plaza and I had never physically seen it before. So I went there. It was really terrific. I had one of my security guys had a guy on the Dallas PD. They took me right into the right into the uh, the place where Ruby was shot, and it's really eerie because right on the floor where where Ruby shot Oswald. Excuse me, where not Os- Ruby was shot, but where Os where Ruby shot Oswald. Um, what's eerie about it is right on the floor is like this grease red oil spill that looks just like blood stained into the floor right at the spot where Lee Harvey Oswald was shot. You know, and they took me there. I was able to see that. And I, and I got to see a lot of stuff, went behind the picket fence to look at the angle there and all that went up next to the, you know, the fatal supposed shooter's nest and saw you had to shoot right through tree leaves all the way to the target, which enhanced me. I looked at the guy, said, are you joking? He had to, obviously there were none of these leaves when it took place. They said, oh no, everything's kept identical to what it was. I said, how could he make this shot? This is a joke. And so the point I'm getting to at the end though, we went out to the airport and I was leaving Dallas and I thought this was very telling. Uh, I smoke cigars then and you're a governor, so they will accommodate you. And I said, where could I have a cigar before I have to get on the plane? So they took me down onto the tarmac away from everything. We're down there and I'm smoking my cigar with Dallas PD, my security, everybody there. It became time to leave. They said, governor, time to board your flight. Okay. Everybody started going up back into the to the uh, Dallas airport from the tarmac where they had us, where I could have my cigar. And as I started to go up the walkway, a Dallas police officer old grabbed me by the elbow and held me back. 
and I stopped and when and and he leaned into me and he said, Governor, he said, I just want to tell you, be careful, be very, very careful, because there's a lot of people that don't want this talked about even today. And I, what the point I'm making is you gotta be kidding me. This is what? How many years? 30 years past the shooting, and I'm being warned off to be careful that my life could be in trouble for even looking or inquiring into this as a high-level United States governor, one of only 50? I thought that was very telling. How do you guys feel about that little story? Well, I think the cover-up continues, Jesse. I mean, today, 60 years later, the New York Times refused a paid ad from Mark Gordon, uh, one of the the funders of Bobby Kennedy Jr.'s campaign for uh, president. Mark Gordon was willing to pay them good money. It was a very, I read the ad, it was very sober, very measured. The New York Times rejected it. They commissioned me and then rejected it went to the top of the newspaper, an op-ed on JFK just days ago. So the cover-up still continues. In Hollywood, yeah. I defy you to name one movie or TV show that tells the truth, except what John Kirby and Dick Russell and others are doing. And by the way, the big media is still a problem. We can talk honestly about this in podcasts and documentaries and so forth. But we can't crack Hollywood at the top. Oliver Stone did it in 91, and they said it'll never happen again. And guess what? They were right. I've worked with Oliver. I know Oliver. I worked with him on a screen the last year about President Kennedy. We'll see if that movie gets uh, blocked or not. I suspect it will be. Well, I, I was amazed that he was able to get JFK revisited out there. I, that exactly. was stunning to me. That And I watched that one. It comes on every time. You know what my favorite part about that is? Where he debunks them, where the three women went down those stairs. Right, Oswald wasn't even on the sixth floor. Exactly. Yep. The documentary you're talking about. And that was, by the way, he got on Showtime. I'm amazed also. He snuck in somehow. But he is Oliver Stone. But even he has a problem getting a dramatic, a, a big Hollywood feature made. That was a documentary that he made uh, last year or two years ago. And Dick Russell and Rob Reiner are collaborating, and Libby Andros and John Kirby uh, have done what they can to get the truth out. Thank God they are. But the big media remains resistant 60 years what? later to the truth. Now, guys, yeah. let me ask you, David, and you'd be a good one to ask. Other than the truth, it's why? Why won't they let the truth come out? Is it simply they think they they won't admit that the United States had a coup d'etat take place and it was successful? Is that simply it, cut and dry? I think they're worried about two things. That, that's a big house of cards. And number two, they're worried about their own complicity in the cover-up. For years, they were on chummy terms with Alan Dulles at the CIA, New York Times executives and, and editors. They all went to the same clubs. They all went. To, they sent their kids to the same schools. They're all friends with each other. 
So they covered up the crime for years. They thought it was for the good of the country. I talked to Ben Bradley, who is the iconic, legendary editor of the Washington Post. I talked to Don Hewitt, who founded 60 Minutes, the investigative show on CBS. I said, you were friends with JFK. Why didn't you do anything about it? They said, you know what Ben Bradley told me? Because it would have damaged my career, it would have ended his career, and possibly threatened his life. So he decided to put the interest of his career ahead of that of the country. I think journalists in this country are far too cowardly, and they go along with the hand that feeds them. You Let are me all ask, different because why you did, have challenged them. Why will they continue to threaten and hurt people because it would hurt them at this point? How could they be harmed? They, because I, I, I still feel their careers could be harmed. If they yeah, tell I think they'd have, uh, you know, they have also have egg on their face because uh, I think a lot of them realize that they never looked into this and independent journalists have and come to the conclusion there had to be a conspiracy, as did the government back in the House Assassinations Committee back in 79. But, you know, they want to bury that. They won't review. They didn't review David's book on Dulles. Uh, they haven't reviewed any of my books on the assassination. Um, you know, we're kind of going and doing an end run around. Well, them now. Well, well, Dick, I feel in good company because my three years doing Jesse Ventura conspiracy theory yep. never been shown in reruns. You can't even get them today. They're all deep sixed. Yeah, yeah exactly. can I? I want to ask you something about that, uh, Governor. Yes, because it's it's very relevant in the JFK episode. Yep. I recall there's a couple scenes where I think that might be worth uh, talking about here. One, the first one where you actually tried to do something similar to the rifle shot. Uh, as, yeah, we as someone we, who was we pretty recreated good at the whole thing. Right. Yep. So, but also Marina Oswald herself, because when you want to talk, when you're talking about someone in Dallas warning you, hey, be careful, people are still concerned about this. Be careful for your safety. She told you something similar. So maybe if you could talk about both of those episodes. I think you know what? I can't, you know, I, I'm going to beg off and say I can't even remember much about the Marina interview. Unfortunately, well, I'll, I'll, I, I, I remember that she did admit to me she took the photos. You know, the Oswald where he's standing there with the gun or whatever. She did tell me she took those, but she was still very evasive. Yes, you know, this, she, let me refresh your memory, Jesse. Okay, this refresh is what you put, me. This is what you put into the, the episode. After you, there was the conversation with her, which wasn't especially revealing, but then she asks to talk to you for a second off of camera, and she asks you the question, uh, something to the effect, what would you do? I'm, I saw this 10 years ago, but I remember it pretty well. What would you do to uh, reveal, to get to the truth of this? Would you sacrifice your children? She said something to that effect off camera to you, and you relate it, and you put it in the episode. So that, to me, I thought was very uh, telling. Well, okay, that that probably meant that she was warning me that she, she wouldn't tell the whole truth because of fear there could be retaliation against her, her kids. I'm she, sure it's coming back to me a little bit now. And I think that's that's what she was pounding home to me was that I can't not be totally candid with you because would you did would you do it and put your kids in harm's way? I, I think the and then, and, that, and, and that, you know what that's a fair question for her to ask too. I, I think they threatened to take uh, Marina's kids away from her and to deport her back to uh, Russia uh, when they interrogated her. They they put the fear of God in her. 
Yeah. Well, this was many, many years later, though, naturally. You know, she's, yeah. in fact, she's now remarried to, and, you know, her last name's Porter, I think. Yes. And if I, I might if add I that, right. if I can add that in 1993, <clears throat> I had gotten to know Marina a bit. I'd interviewed her for my first book, The Man Who Knew Too Much. And um, she had told me at, at, at that point that she was a walking zombie in those days. I mean, she was mis terribly mistreated by the authorities after they picked her up, of course. But in 1993, she came to Boston uh, at my behest, and 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 uh, we we gathered a whole group of lawyers together, the best, some of the best in the country, and even Daniel Ellsberg showed up at my house uh, that where I lived then in Boston, and Marina was really desperate to reopen the investigation. She wanted it out, wanted to see if there was any way. That, that, that it could be shown, you know, in a, in a courtroom or some kind of way that, that Lee was innocent because she believed he was by this, certainly by this point, maybe she was just willing to say it by then, but um, nobody could come up with any way to do it 30 years later, unfortunately. And she's pretty much clammed up again over the years, but, but uh, I had a lot of respect for her, you know, for, for coming and doing that. Do, do you know what I would like to see a movement happen right now, everyone? We just went through the ordeal of the, the killers of Malcolm X, where these two guys got tossed in prison, spent how many years in there, and yeah. they've now determined they were innocent. Uh -huh. They're not guilty. They let them out. They cleared the record. I would love, and I would love to participate in a movement, let's clear Lee Harvey Oswald's name the same way. I am I sick and tired. That. I am sick and tired of every time you hear something about the murder of President Kennedy, right away, Lee Oswald's name is tied to whatever story it is. Absolutely. And I would <coughs> add to that, take the name Dulles off the Washington airport, the International Airport. It's named for John Foster Dulles, the brother of Alan Dulles, who was Secretary of State. Those names should be an infamy, the, the name Dulles. And Oswald should be cleared. I agree with you. And and let's take Hoover off the name of that building because he knew what was going to happen. Um, and you can hear in his tapes with Lyndon Johnson that they were already looking to cover things up after the assassination. Or better yet, let's make them keep them on and disband those agencies the way that Kennedy wanted to and scatter them <laughs> to the winds. Because that, I think, uh, what's, what needs to happen. And of course, the, the big answer to the big question here is, I mean, this is in a sense, and I, I think, you know, Vince Salandria, the godfather of all uh, Kennedy assassination researchers who, you know, I know was working with David in ways on his book and certainly was a major mentor to us in our film. You know, he, they solved the assassin on, assassination on Assassination Weekend. It was very clear. They could, you could ask a certain set of basic questions, right? What would an honest government do? Would an honest government allow the crime scene to be completely uh, destroyed, like dry clean Governor Connolly's clothes, take the bullet ridden limousine that they just ridden in and send it back to Ford and have the dents knocked out of it, allow, uh, uh, send a tape, send a communication to Air Force One saying, uh, and to the cabinet plane uh, that was flying back over the Pacific, oh, we got the guy, it wasn't a, an hour after Oswald's been arrested. We got the guy, there was no conspiracy, it's all over. How would they know that? Of course they didn't know that. They're revealing, as Vince says, they're saying, we're going to tell you exactly what happened. You'd forget about what you saw, heard, smelled, and felt. We're going to say there's one assassin. You're going to say that. And then the final thing, as Jesse alluded to, uh, 
how, how would they allow the prime suspect to be killed in police custody? This is not the actions of an honest government. And, and so Vince knew with his brother-in-law at the time, you know, Anglo-Saxon concepts of jurisprudence had just thrown out the window. And this indicates the, pre- the national security state coup emanating from the highest levels. They, they, they just simply wouldn't have let it happen if it was a real thing. And if they were, if they thought there might've been any possibility of a conspiracy from Russia or the mob or anywhere, they would not be so quick to close the case. <laughs> Do you know what part I like is when Oswald is arrested in the theater. Now, the guy, you, you think of this for a moment. You've just had the murder of the president maybe an hour earlier. You had the murder of Officer Tippett, a Dallas police officer on the street a half hour earlier. Now this guy sees somebody walking along suspiciously and he doesn't buy a ticket to go into the Saturday matinee movie for, what, 35, 40 cents? So he calls the police dispatcher. Now, I like to put myself in the position of the police dispatcher. You get this call. I just saw someone sneak into the Texas theater this afternoon for the matinee, and they didn't buy a ticket. Now, as the dispatcher, I would have said to him, wait a minute. We just had the murder of the president of the United States an hour ago. We had a murder of a Dallas police officer half hour ago. We got bigger fish to fry than to worry about somebody sneaking into the Texas but theater they spent for the Saturday. Whole fourth, Jesse. For, they well, the whole yeah, that's the point I'm getting to. Than that. So what is the ultimate result? What? Twelve squad cars, twenty cops, and the news media all show up at this theater for a guy who allegedly didn't buy a ticket to get in. And you just had the president killed an hour earlier. That, that, that explodes it all. You're right. Yeah. To me, you look at that and you go, what do they think? I'm a blithering idiot. uh, Another part of that is that it was the announcement that went out, I believe had the wrong height and weight for Oswald, but it happened to match his military intelligence file. Exactly. So it was like five ten and 160, which or something to that effect. And it wasn't right, but it matched it exactly. And it was an ID that supposedly came from someone looking up at a small six story window, yeah. which is it's preposterous. Not to mention sending the SWAT team to the, to somebody who basically jumped a turnstile. I mean, it's a false mystery. The, the Kennedy assassination and the rest of these are a false mystery. It's great to have all the documents that we can get and all these kinds of you know details come out. But we, we've got to recognize it's a false mystery. The real mystery is us. Why don't we do anything about it? What can we do about it? What are we going to do about it, right? I mean, the problem is, you know, there, there was a coup. There hasn't been a counter coup. Every president since then has been an empty suit for the national security state. And I do mean every single one. And there's no exceptions there. You know, even for the people who think that, you know, Trump was some kind of rogue. I do not believe that. I think every single one of these guys has could not have been anything other than an instrument of the military industrial complex, intelligence complex, and and whatever you want to call the establishment that runs this country, and increasingly, it seems, the world. So that's what it's going to take, right? And I think, you know, as Pete Seeger said in our film, The American Ruling Class, he talked about all our little teaspoons. And the thing, the work that Dick Russell and David Talbot and Jesse Ventura and you, Aaron, with your book, these are the little teaspoons that we have to keep adding to the kind of scales of history, right? 
And if you just, you know, and, and, and as Pete says in our interview with him, he's like, people come up and say, well, what are you doing with your little teaspoons? You're never going to get anywhere. You know, they're boulders on the other side, right? And he says, well, you might be right. But we think that, you know, if enough people do it, little by little, one day those scales are going to go zoop. And the whole thing is going to come apart. The, their whole edifice, their, the whole empire will fall. And that is, that's the dream, right? We have to get by, the empire. By the way, fall. let me throw one thing in. You all, I, I can tell there's a sense that there's a, a support for Bobby Kennedy here, you know, for to, to run. Yeah. You all are tight with him. You better tell him he needs to pick me as a running mate. You want to know why? I'm his best insurance policy. <laughs> They're not going to kill him and put me in there. <laughs> you know, that's, that's what right. Nixon. So that's what you guys Nixon think thought. about. No, everybody laughs, but I'm telling oh, you, that's great. a serious, serious. He needs to pick a, a person that they're more frightened of than him. <laughs> that's right. Of, that's of, good, so Jesse. that they won't pick him out and say, "Well, we'll dust off Junior and we'll be home free." No, <laughs> you dust off Junior, you get something twice as bad. You're, you're saying, Jesse, that. you're no LBJ, right, Jesse? <laughs> oh, I'm no LBJ. You can count on that. <laughs> can I ask you guys what you all think about the Aaron? Do you mind? Or do we have time? Can I ask David and Dick and Jesse and, and you, Aaron? What I mean, we've recently been running into some fairly compelling. I mean, we're kind of all of the above series. We're going to consider everything. Dick, we have to interview you. Jesse, I hope you'll let us interview you. Sure. And, you know, we we are trying to bring in everything. We think that the entire establishment is implicated. And we think, as Jack Ruby says, as he's being hauled away, let's put it this way. This never would have happened if Adlai Stevenson was vice president, right? So the whole question of Lyndon Johnson's level of involvement, you know, and he's in, he's lionized for civil rights. We've been talking to people who have made it very clear that Lyndon Johnson was the enemy of civil rights. I mean, Abraham Bolden, who was the first black Secret Service agent assigned to the White House, hired directly by JFK, tells an incredible story of the way he was treated by Lyndon Johnson and the arguments that he overheard. And we know that, uh, you know, and he blocked every, blocked the uh, anti-lynching bill. He blocked every civil rights measure that was before him in the Congress. And he didn't do crap while he was sitting there as vice president to usher mass Mr. Master of the Senate to usher in the civil rights legislation that Kennedy wanted. So you know, that picture needs to be exploded. And then there's this, you know, he's in the middle of all, there are all these hearings going on, right? I mean, on November 22nd, 1963, a guy named Reynolds is testifying to the Senate about the TFX fighter contract, right? Because Lyndon Johnson has managed to get uh, general dynamics the contract that Boeing had for the for the F-111, what becomes the F-111 fighter. And Reynolds is testifying about how uh, Bobby Baker, the, the Sergeant Arts of the Senate and Lyndon Johnson's right-hand man, is showing him a suitcase with $100,000 worth of cash. I mean, that hearing was happening. And then the pre- on that day, 60 years ago today, it was happening. And then the secretary comes in and says the president's been shot. And Reynolds takes his evidence. He goes, well, I guess he won't be needing this anymore. Because it's one thing to go after the vice president. And so we know from James Vagenvord from Life magazine that, you know, Bobby Kennedy was feeding all kinds of material to Life and to all kinds of investigators to try to get 
rid of Lyndon Johnson. To get him off the ticket, he faced jail. Now, I'm not saying Lyndon Johnson's the mastermind as a result of all this, but it seems like from the point of view of the rest of the establishment, it's like there's their man and he's about to go down. He was going to be out of politics. He could have gone to jail. So what do you all think of, of about Lyndon Johnson's involvement in light of these things? Well, I think Lyndon Johnson, here's my situation with him here. He had a dream to be president of the United States, and it was it was a big one to him. Right. But he also was realist enough to know that a Southerner at that time was never going to win, would never be the president in his lifetime. So I, I find it very interesting that I think Kennedy was going to take who? Stuart Symington first? If I remember right, the That's senator right. is a running exactly right. mate. He already and made then, the offer. Yeah, and then at the 11th hour, all of a sudden, everything switched to LBJ. I think LBJ was already at that point, he knew he wanted to be president. He had desires to be president. He knew he could never win an election. And the only way that he could ever, ever hope to achieve the presidency was to become VP and ascend to the and presidency. hope for a death, and hope yep. for a death. Force his yep. way onto the ticket and, yep. and hope or engineer a death. Yep. Yeah, and, 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 I, and he I was... believe that completely. I believe that was Johnson's agenda from the very beginning. And then when you find out he was the one that talked Kennedy into going to Texas, and didn't he leave like 30 to 45 days ahead of time to prepare for the trip? That's right. And, then right. Argue, and then he comes in the night before to Jack, jo Jackie and John uh, and Jack's room and and argues to get uh, Governor Connolly put into his car instead of uh, Gov uh, instead of uh, Senator Yarbrough. And yep. so because, you know, because Connolly was his friend and he hated Yarbrough and Yarbrough right. sitting there watching him the whole and, time ducked down on a radio. He's ducking the entire time of the motorcade. And, of course, protocol the governors to ride with the president. That's so right. Johnson's trying to destroy protocol. Yeah, uh, and, of course, yeah, when Johnson think, comes in, he uh, immediately reverses what Kennedy was doing, which was pulling out of Vietnam. I mean, the very first actions that he took. And also he, he changes the policy on, on Cuba. So he was, you know, uh, he also, I'll add one more thing, because there was a trial going on. Out west, I don't, I don't have have time to get into the whole Richard Nagel story, but immediately a new federal judge came into the case uh, because Nagel knew what had happened and what was going, had gone down with the assassination. He was going to spill that at this trial. Judge Homer Thornberry, who was LBJ's close friend, was in the motorcade that day. Suddenly re resigns from Congress and goes out to uh, to Texas to take over as federal judge in that trial and, and shut down any attempt to get the word out. So wow. <laughs> Look, wow. I think President Johnson what do you think about this? That's amazing, well, he, Nick. I think President Johnson benefited enormously from the crime. You're right, John, that there were criminal investigations of him. Bobby Kennedy was always his enemy. Uh, but it's not certain to me that President Kennedy would have dumped him from the ticket in 64. He desperately needed Texas, and LBJ uh, was corrupt enough to deliver Texas. Um I don't think, LB, L, as Robert Caro has said, LBJ was a physical coward. I don't think the master plotters of this actually uh, brought him into the center of their plot. I think he knew it was going to happen. I think he benefited enormously from it. But I don't think he knew how wide and high up uh, a conspiracy was. He said to his 
his key uh, aide, Bill Moyers, on the plane ride back to Washington on Air Force One. He was looking at the window, and Bill Moyers asked him what he was thinking, and he said, I wonder when the missiles are going to start to fly. So he thought the killing of Kennedy was a pretext for either war with Soviet Union or war with Castro and Cuba. I don't think uh, LBJ was one of the key planners of this plot. I don't think that he was not high enough in the chain of command. Well, I think he benefited yeah. from it. I think he was an accessory after the fact, but I don't think he was a plotter, a main plotter. Fair enough. He was That's kind of strange to hear when you hear the vice president wasn't quite high enough. Exactly. Yeah. That's our democracy, Jesse. No, no. I mean, that's a strange, that, that's, that's, that's a weird thing to listen to, that the vice exactly. president wasn't quite high enough. Well, I think the oligarchs on Wall Street and in the Texas oil industry had more power than the LBJ. Yeah. No, I'm not arguing with you. It's just strange to hear that. What I, I, would, I would point to the fact that as soon as Ruby is killed, they start lobbying you know, the White House, you have the Katzenbach memo and so on, but it's uh, Joseph Alsop and Rostow's brother, Eugene Rostow, and they're both blue blood people, and they're both acting as kind of stalking horses for Dean Acheson, who's behind them. Donald Gibson, the sociologist, has written about this. He's a, a really brilliant essay on this subject and how the Warren Commission was created. But the fact that it was decided upon by somebody like Acheson, Acheson is the guy whose subordinate wrote, you know, George Kennan wrote the long telegram that basically sets up containment. And then in 1950, it was an Acheson subordinate, Paul Nitza, who wrote NSC 68, which really creates the military industrial complex and this model for a militarized economy and global empire. And so the fact that he created this empire, and in a sense, in these two ways, he sort of shepherded containment and then the military-industrial complex. And then in 1963, he's saying, let's cover up this assassination. That, to me, says that it came from the very top of this, of the Wall Street yeah. oligarchy of corporate wealth. That's right. Somebody not, and, and Johnson is kind of a crass opportunist, whereas Acheson represents yeah. real power and a power that is even above Atchison, because well, if yeah, you're yeah. really powerful, then you have people like Atchison doing your work for you. Well, let's let's and all that's agree. the oligarchy. Yeah. That, that, that the top levels of the government and private industry had to be okay with this. And whether whatever whoever was involved in planning what what you know, it sounds like something the CIA would plan, maybe the Air Force who you know, military people. But the point is that the top levels, because if any of them, the top of the Secret Service, the top of the, the certainly you know, J. Edgar Hoover must have been okay with this. Because the fact is, none of them said, hey, wait a second. None of them, none of those power sectors said, wait a second, let's stop this, let's, let's turn this ship around here and what's going on. There was no faction. There was no factionalism. And sadly, okay. the Can only I one add, of Kennedy's uh, inner circle, yeah. Uh, I think it's very important to understand who financed Dallas. That's an area that we don't know much about. Uh, I think it was very key that Alan Dulles himself in his papers uh, at Princeton said he was meeting that weekend with John Simpson. That weekend, November 22nd, he, he was having dinner with him. Who the hell was John Simpson? He was a banker. He'd been a banker at the pro-Nazi bank before the war, the Henry Schroeder Bank. At the time of the Kennedy assassination, he was head of the finance committee for Bechtel, the huge engineering and construction company based here 
in San Francisco that gave uh, Reagan, uh, President Reagan, Casper Weinberger and George Shultz, among others. It was It's a privately held company, intelligence-connected company. I think the money to kill Kennedy, to bring in the snipers, to, uh, to do the cover-up, it cost a lot of money, uh, was provided by bankers, off-the-books bankers, and friends of Alan Dulles. He what about met, Hunt? He met, according to his daybook, yes, oil industry people as well. He met, according to his own daybook at Princeton, uh, in the days before Dallas, with, quote, bankers in New York. Who the hell were those people? I want to know. So I think we have to drill down a little further to find out who financed this. I want to say one more thing that's very important. The weekend, according to Dulles's own paper, the weekend, the fateful weekend that Kennedy was killed and then Oswald was killed, uh, Dulles went to Camp Peary, the farm, as it was known. That's a remote CIA facility in the Virginia countryside. Now, what the hell was the guy who was fired by President Kennedy two years earlier after the disastrous Bay of Pigs? What the hell was he doing going there that weekend? That's very odd, I think. So I would look at people uh, much higher, uh, I'm afraid, than LBJ, who were actually at the center of this plot, including Dallas and including the bankers who financed this operation. What do, you guys, what do you guys make of the meeting the night at Murchison's house? Does anyone have any verification on that? No. I'm no. skeptical. I, I would add, though, to what David was saying, that it's also interesting in terms of who was pulling the strings. Okay, if you look at the Warren Commission, not only was Dulles on it, of course, but Gerald Ford. He was just a congressman from Michigan at the time who we now know was informing to J. Edgar Hoover and reporting to him everything that was happening in the Warren Commission. Then he becomes president of the United States, he's after Nixon goes down. And then you have George H.W. Bush, who suddenly in the midst of these investigations in the mid-1970s is named director of the CIA and later, of course, goes on to become president. So it, it kind of makes you wonder about the, the, the last 60 years and who's been put in place. Yeah, where news, yes, yes. Newsweek called uh, Gerald Ford the CIA's man in Congress. <laughs> That's a yeah. quote from Newsweek. Exactly. So, I mean, yeah, the, the whole, it's just riddled. They're just, they're all, you know, the fingerprints of intelligence are over all of them. <laughs> well, exactly. well, wasn't it Gerald who uh, said he moved the bullet, so the bullet hole on the autopsy, so yep. it could be more clear to everyone? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> can, Aaron, can I add one thing? The cover-up continues today. The media should be going ballistic about the 4,000 documents that by law belong to the American people and are still, according to President Trump and President Biden, uh, being withheld from the American public. So there's now, still 4,000? 4,000 documents. 4, I sued for one of those. You say, what the hell is in those documents? Are, are there any that are relevant? Yes. I sued under the Freedom of Information Act when I was researching my book, Devil's Chessboard, I sued for one of those documents. Key document. It showed that it, this document, the travel records for William Harvey. Who is William Harvey? He was head of the CIA's assassinations team. He was stationed at the time of the Kennedy assassination in Rome. He had no business in Dallas. Yet he was spotted by his deputy, uh, a guy named Mark Wyatt, flying on a plane from Rome to Dallas before the assassination. He told him, I'm going to look around. Now, the CIA has withheld his travel records. What the hell was he doing flying to Dallas? The assassinations chief for the CIA. 
they wouldn't give me that document. They denied it. So those are among the 4,000 documents still being withheld by the CIA today. David, we have to re-interview you about this. And Dick and Aaron and, and Governor, we've got to interview you guys on all that you know. And uh, and I just want, if I can just say, please, everyone, come help us watch Four Died Trying on Apple TV today. You're going to see, for the Kennedy Beacon fans, you're going to see Bobby Kennedy Jr., uh, though his big episode is the next chapter. Uh, but you're going to see him there, and you're going to see uh, just over – we have 120 interviews with people. Some of them are the last interviews. And, uh, you know, if you want to – if you're interested in what everyone here has been talking about, you can hear a lot more about it on in Ford Eye Trying in our prologue. Yes, I would also recommend that people check out Jesse Ventura's Substack, which we will put a link to in the show notes. Dick Russell, where can people find your new podcast the, with Soledad O'Brien and Rob Reiner? Yeah, I mean, if they have Spotify, it's iHeartRadio um, and Apple. So you, you can go there. That It doesn't cost anything to uh, their weekly episodes. There are 10 of them. Three of them have already aired. And uh, it's the same link always to get to them. They air every Wednesday now. And by the end of it, yeah, we're going to say who we believe was uh, was behind this terrible event. And we can also see David's excellent columns at the Kennedy Beacon. And he also co-hosts The Devil's Chessboard with me, which is on YouTube, Devil's Chess Club, I should say, with Bryce Green and me. And also um, it's on the American Exception podcast on Patreon. So people can check that out. I want to thank Dick Russell, David Talbot, Jesse Ventura, John Kirby, and Libby Handros for joining us. As we sign off, I want you all to go to the Kennedy Beacon Substack, where you can read great stories by Kennedy Beacon writers and learn more about Robert F. Kennedy Jr., as well as the issues facing all of us in this momentous election season. Uh, also, check out the Kennedy Beacon Live Spaces event tonight on Twitter or X at 7.30 Eastern to hear a live discussion about the 60th anniversary of the Kennedy assassination tonight. I want to close with this conclusion to my new Kennedy Beacon article on the assassination, because I, and I believe that the other guests will agree with the sentiments here. It is now clearly in the national interest to disclose the truth of the JFK assassination. What better way to demonstrate that democracy and the rule of law are not mere cover stories for top-down rule? Why shouldn't we look back at people like John F. Kennedy and others who died trying to achieve peace? The work of scholars, researchers, and journalists has served to thoroughly debunk the U.S. regime's account of the JFK assassination. Why not confront the truth of what happened in Dallas as a way to begin making real the myths we have been fed about the supposedly lawful and democratic United States of America? Beautifully said. Yes. Can't, add a, can't add nothing to it. <laughs> Thank you so much, gentlemen. This was, uh, and Libby as well. This was really a, a heartening discussion, and I, I really appreciate you all being here on this historic occasion. Thank you. Thank Thanks you. for having us. Let's be thankful to JFK for saving the world during the Cuban Missile Crisis for Thanksgiving this year. Amen. Yeah.